Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I welcome Lynn Yowett. Lynn is a professional writer and editor with more than 25 years of experience in writing and editing everything from captions for artworks to speeches for executives. Her debut novel, The Silent Listener, is loosely based on events from her childhood growing up in rural Victoria. That's terrifying, Lynn. How are you? <laughs> Good, Benny. Um, okay. Um, you know, I'm okay. (laughs) Well, we'll delve into that throughout this interview. Don't you worry. (laughs) Before we get on that track, can you give us a quick elevator pitch as to what this book is about? Okay. So this book is about a family that is trapped and drowning in a whole web of lies and secrets that date back through many decades and It's the story of two daughters who decide to wreak revenge and what happens before, during and after that. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. That's a great elevator pitch. It was very concise and it's hard to be concise with a book of this, you know, volume with all the things you've put in it. So I'm very impressed with that elevator pitch. (laughs) Now, I need to ask you, loosely based on events from your childhood growing up in rural Victoria, I mean, we're going to go deep fast here, Lynn, so I hope you're prepared but what can you tell me? I mean, loosely based, setting-based or family-based or a little bit of both? Tell me about this. Okay, a little bit of both. So setting-based, let's talk about that because that's really easy. So this is the farm that I lived on, grew on. Wow. And so elements of the story that are um, true include things like the dam, which features in the novel, people haven't read it, They'll find out when they do read it. 
um, the rubbish tank in the front paddock, the eels, the water lilies in the dam, the house that I grew up on, the sheds and the chooks and the ferrets, all of those things are real right down to the wall hanging that hung over our kitchen table. Wow. Uh, which is where the name, uh, the title of the book comes from. And uh, so some things have changed to accommodate certain parts of the storytelling part of it, but essentially it's the house and the farm um, and the, and the neighbourhood. So there are some, some things that are true about some of the neighbours and some things that aren't. Um, and then, yeah, some things about my family are in there. So that the father in that novel is pretty much my father. And wow. pretty much a life that we lived. Mm. And it's kind of a little bit weird talking about it because some things, some things are true. Some things are exaggerated and some things are underplayed. For, this, for a couple of reasons, um, partly because I wanted to write a good story. I had to have a story that propelled readers and, you know, I wanted twists and turns and things like that in it. So, so that makes some parts of it um, exaggerated and then there are some parts of it that, aren't, that are underplayed because when I workshopped it with um, other writers, sometimes I would write things that actually happened and those were the bits that they didn't believe, mm. the bits that I'd made up. They said, oh, yeah, no, yeah, we believe this, but this bit here, no, that would never happen. And I just think, yeah, really? Because that is the only true bit of what you've just read. So I thought that was really interesting, but I, I, I did have to take that on board and think, okay, if people aren't actually going to believe it, even though it's true, then maybe it doesn't stay in. Maybe I think of other ways of depicting these characters and their interactions and stuff like that. Um, so that's sort of essentially what's true. There are elements, I, I'm very pleased to say, that there is no nine-year-old girl who went missing from a neighbouring farm. But I did grow up in a time when, uh, and it's still true, of course, that little girls particularly for some reason did go missing and I remember reading about the very first one in the newspapers, the first one that I became conscious of the fact that this is what can happen. People steal children and then mm. they're That's just... Wow, terrifying. Terrible. And um, so I remember the name of the girl who went missing when I first realised that this could happen. So it kind of, you know, played on... I guess who I was when I was growing up, that sort of realisation and that really heavy sort of ill feeling that you get when you think about that sort of thing. Um, but there was no Wendy in my life that that happened to. And um, I probably should add that I did not go home to nurse my father while he was dying. So anything around that is also fictional. Mm, fascinating so many things that you just said are fascinating the first thing is you know truth I mean that's where it comes from doesn't it truth is always stranger than fiction and you know it sounds like a cliche but it happens so often you know when you hear people's stories and people don't believe the true part so I find that very fascinating and what I wanted to ask you I mean you know thank you for being so honest and, and candid because sometimes I think this must be quite difficult for you 
Was the writing process a difficult one when you were getting to those truthful parts of your life or was it a cathartic experience or did it become both? Uh, I guess it was both, but in, I find this really interesting from the perspective of yeah, being a writer that when I got to those parts and when I was writing them, originally I was just writing lots of scenes and maybe chapters, sort of vignettes and so on, and I hadn't at one point even decided to write a novel and I was doing that as a cathartic exercise and kind of process the legacy of my dad um, and then once I had decided that it was going to be a novel I had to work out how I was going to put it all together and actually make a strong narrative and also not just rely on my life which is kind of essentially pretty boring <laughs> if I'd just done that yeah I don't think much would have happened um, so uh, when I decided to, I had to decide how I was going to use, I'm just going to say maybe those quite distressing scenes where there is um, family abuse going on. And, and I have to say that, in fact, when I was writing those scenes, um, in some ways they were the easiest to write because I think that they came from really deep down inside me and they wanted to come out for a long time. And, and so um, I actually said this at Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival a couple of weeks ago. I, I did actually kind of feel like I had fire coming out of my fingertips. It was a really, um, I want to say it was a really great experience, even though it was a terrible thing to be writing about. I think it really was about expunging it. Mm, yeah. Wow. It's out there and the book is published and it and it's a thing by itself. Um, I, I think I can talk about this sort of stuff and because I've kind of put it out there and it's contained within the novel and and so it's a bit separate separate from me now. So hmm. yeah, it, it's been it's interesting looking back to yeah. see you know, what I went through from the point of view of writing about this and then the editing of it as well because you have to apply a different level of detachment. You can't be mired in the emotional reality while you're doing the editing. You have to, yeah. you know, how does this hold the story together? How will readers um, think about this? How does it fit in with the um, the characters and the voice and the plot and the mm. and all of that kind of stuff. So it's, it has been really interesting. Mm, so you've got to put that analytical, practical lens on it after you've, you know, expunged all of that stuff and you've got to put all that analytical stuff on it. So there is a narrative thread. There are strong characters and it makes sense and there's a timeline and all those things that matter for a, a story. Yeah. So and talking about the timeline, that's one thing that I also messed around with. So there are incidents that happened maybe over... 15 years, for example, that I've compressed into five years or things that happened over a year that I've compressed into a few weeks, that sort of thing. But that's mm -hmm. I think of how people, um, even when they're writing memoir, I think that there's room for um, not necessarily depicting, depicting everything exactly as it happened, but I kind of think it's a bit like impressionist painting, uh, impressionism, that I'm... 
that when you write memoir, you're giving people an impression of what it was like. Yeah. There at that time, that it's not necessarily an exact replica of everything with all of the minute details, but you're giving people an impression and they're getting enough to um, have an emotional reaction to it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right because, you know, so much of life is that kind of tediousness that we go through every day, you know, and memoirs aren't diary entries and, and neither is obviously yours as a work of fiction, but it has those you know elements from your life in it. So, you know, it's not a diary entry. We don't want all that stuff. So I think you've got to really be mindful of your reader and taking them along your journey and compressing. And I like the idea of impressionism because, Whenever you read anything, you want that emotional reaction, you know, whether it's a news article or whether it's a blog or whether it's a book or a poem, whatever, you want to have that emotional response. Otherwise, you've kind of wasted your time reading it, right? So I like that idea. I want to experience something I haven't experienced before or be somewhere I haven't been before. Yeah. Look through the eyes of someone that I, you know, I'm not familiar with. And I always used to think, like, I can't paint to save myself. So I dropped art as soon as I could at high school which was in retrospect I wish I hadn't but the only the only way you could pass art back then was to be able to paint and draw and do things like that not it wasn't about developing your appreciation of art Mm -hmm. that came many years later for me and I remember looking at paintings by impressionists thinking oh my god they haven't actually painted the eyes and the nose and the you know all, all 12 Um, petals on a flower or something they've just put a dab of paint there and when you look at it I interpret it as a flower or a person or a boat or whatever it is and that just blew me away so I I kind of think that's something useful for writers as well to keep in mind you know we don't need all the detail we just need to be able to read it and 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 get it so and distill those you know, important moments that you want to convey to tell that story. Yeah, yeah, yes. Now, I do like how the book shifts between decades. So you've got 40s, 60s, 80s, and I thought, you know, it must be kind of fun to revisit the past in some ways, but, you know, what were the challenges in revisiting these times? Because you needed to sort of make them quite separate from each other. Yeah, it was a challenge, and I I hope to never do it again. (laughs) (laughs) It was really ambitious and um, <laughs> and it was really difficult because I started off just doing 60s chapters and then 60s and 1983 chapters and I was kind of pretty happy with that. And then, again, through uh, in some of the writing workshops, people were saying, yeah, but why, are the fa- why is the family like that? Why is the father like that? Why is the mother like that? And... So I thought, all right, I'll I'll just paint a little bit of a picture of how the parents met, and I aimed to just keep them relatively small little vignettes. I had this goal that they none of them would be more than six hundred words, but didn't quite end up that way. But that's okay. Um, and so at one point, I was I had sixties of um, chapters from the forties through to the sixties. And then, and the 60s and the 80s, and I was trying, I was writing all of them kind of simultaneously, moving back and forth between them a lot. And then I did, I started to do a lot of um, plotting. So I'm definitely a pantser. <laughs> I think, right, I actually have to pull all this in order and get my plot points right and get them 
kind of at the right points throughout the novel, so you're building suspense and um, moving on and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I, I messed around with that a lot and then I thought, right, I don't even know where each time thread how that's going anymore. So I physically separated it into three files. And for a while I just worked on each era by itself in order to kind of get the integrity of that mm-hmm. and that story. And even, you know, little things like continuity, if you say it's a, you know, a pink tea cosy in one scene, it's got to be a pink tea cosy later and things like that. And so that was kind of good and I was feeling really on, you know, on top of it and in control and all the rest of it. And then I thought, oh, my God, now I have to weave them all back together again. <laughs> and it really did my head in. I don't mind saying that. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good with Microsoft Word. So I, I knew that I could do it in Word and I could use some tricks and some of the advanced features in Word to keep an eye on the structure and manage it and physically kind of do it. But, oh, it really created headaches. <laughs> I can sure that when something happened in the 1940s chapters, for example, but I didn't want people to know about it until they'd read something that happened in the 1960s chapter or, or a 1983 chapter, but it had to occur at a certain time in the 19. 19- 1960s chapters, it really did my head in <laughs> sitting at my computer and thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I feel like I've just created this enormous monster and it's just got tentacles everywhere and somehow I've got to put it all together to make it work. Um, but I think um, this is where my day job came in to play a bit because I thought, you know, sometimes I get really massive jobs for clients and you know like I'm talking really huge things and I think I just chip away at it it's a little bit you know that Annie Lamott thing about bird by bird you just keep going and you keep going if you make a mistake but if I put something in the wrong place today I can move it and I can then I can move something else in this time thread and 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 then I just need to go back and I'll make changes to accommodate the fact that it's move down three chapters or something just that I just have to keep going just yeah and and there is you know that I guess consolation of being able to do that and go going back and forth and back and forth but is there an impatience as well because you just want to get it finished but in order to get it finished it has to be right um I think I'm a pretty patient person (laughs) um so yeah I think you're right it is that it is that thing of yeah I if I just keep going, I think maybe it's about having a goal and goal in mind and, you know, right, I'm just going to keep working to that and every time I do something I'm a little bit closer to it, you know. Yeah, no, I like that. Now, as you mentioned, you know, you're a professional editor and writer and you just sort of touched on that, but how did it go putting that lens on your own work? Because I imagine that must be different to putting that lens on someone else's work. Yeah. Um it was pretty interesting I think um I think one of the weaknesses I have as a writer is that if I haven't got an apostrophe in the right place it's like it's in flashing neon light (laughs) this is not a good thing (laughs) 
because it just really irks me. And if I write a sentence and I think, oh, that's a really crap sentence, I just, I just can't let it be there. And if I try and keep writing, it's just drawing me to it and I have to go back and fix it up. And so that probably slows me down a bit in terms of getting the story out. And, um, you know, someone, I forget who it was, someone said that they um, write with their monitor turned off. Oh, wow. They are just writing. Oh, my goodness. I've never heard of that before. And I... I, (laughs) It's insane. I know. I know, right? And... I just tell you, I can tell you right now, I could never do that because... That is quirky. I think I I have a slightly um, obsessive-compulsive thing about apostrophes and commas. Just wondering how that would go. It would be like you'd wake up and you would think, wow, did I write that when I was asleep or something? (laughs) Like, what does that look like? I don't know. I'm assuming that the person can touch type. Mm. I don't know. But, yeah, I just thought, no, that is not for me. I just... But you know what? As an experiment, I'm just going to give it a crack for fun tomorrow and see what happens. Send me what you write. Yeah, all right. <laughs> It'll be like this. We've got to make it a two-way street. I'll write you a letter <laughs> with the monitor off. We'll see what happens. <laughs> dear Lynn. <laughs> it won't say dear Lynn. It will say something completely different. One of my friends who's an artist and who I'm very jealous of because she can do things like paint and draw and sculpt and all sorts of things. Very, very jealous. Um, she was telling me about a method of drawing where you do the same thing. Mm. Pencil and you look at, so I'm going to draw you. I have my sheet of paper and I have my newly sharpened pencil or crayon or whatever medium I'm using. And I draw you without looking. Yeah, I've heard of that before. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know, maybe it comes from the same Mm, interesting the writing with the monitor off. I might just go to work and do that tomorrow and see what happens to my work <laughs> might find myself unemployed by Thursday <laughs> yeah that's it that's it lots of free time other problems will come with that but hey I'll have lots of time <laughs> now I love how this book has been described as a literary suspense novel set in the dark gothic heart of rural Australia. Now, when a description like that comes back to you, is that what, you know, do you think, well, of course, that's of course what I was going to write or is that kind of a surprise to you? No, of course that's what I was going to write. <laughs> no, I didn't know it was dark and um, I think a lot of people who'd read bits of it or, and, or big bits of it said that it was pretty gothic. Uh, psychological thriller. Yeah, so. It's a great description. I'm really happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> like I think that's the ultimate description for like a crimey, dark sort of psychological thriller book. I mean, you, I don't think you can get a much better compliment than that really. Yeah, um, I am pretty happy with it. And I, it, I find it interesting because I always wanted to write um, highbrow literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my thing. I studied literature when I was uh, at uni and um, you know, just thought, yeah, th- that's what I want to do. But it's uh, pretty literary, Lynn. I've got to say, when I was reading it, I found it quite literary. Well, so that, that really makes me happy because I did want to do something like that. And then I have to tell you, this is really interesting. I, um, I know J.P. Pomare, 
And when he was writing his first novel, Call Me Evie, he had this um, idea of writing, I think I've got this right, sorry, JP, if I haven't, uh, a literary novel. And then uh, someone suggest, read part of it and said, oh, you should make this a thriller. This would be great as a thriller. And, that, and he went off and did that. And so he got um, his deal with Hachette and, and the book came out while I was still writing mine. And I, I was pretty jealous. <laughs> and I looked at what he had done and I, there was a little bit of me that thought, you know, that is, that is actually really, that is really good. I like this idea of doing something that is really compelling and has a mystery and a twist and you don't quite know who's telling the truth and when they are and when they aren't and why they're not telling the truth. And I really liked that you know, thing about getting inside someone's head mm. and also definitely about deceiving readers. Yeah. And, you know, I've had this conversation with people so much lately, I think, because I've been doing a lot of crime, a lot of reading of crime and, you know, special event on crime. But crime has everything. And I don't think we can say any more, not that I ever did, but, you know, crime isn't a literary, it's a genre fiction, etc. I think because there's so much out there. And I think, you know, maybe Craig Sisterson said that, you know, there's such a church of of different types of crime novels that then slip into horror or police procedural or suspense or psychological thriller. I don't think you can just say it's about the dead body anymore because it's about the psychological intent. It's about, like you said, the the deceiving um, the readers or that unreliable narrator. It's about suspense and twists and plot lines and it's about love and it's about relationships and friendships. Like it has everything in it and I think that's why I'm so drawn to crime as well you know we were talking off air about being English teachers you're an English teacher as was I and of course you always think if I'm going to write something it's going to be literary you know because you you read Oscar Wilde and you teach Shakespeare and you read you know Chaucer but you know I think appreciating that kind of literary fiction or literary genre is is different to writing it and sometimes it doesn't always come out you know and so I think you just have to be true to yourself and write what you want to write and not worry about anything else and and there was a point when the book was fairly well developed that I thought oh that um the detective or the cop Alex Shepard popped up one day and I thought what the hell are you doing here (laughs) I am not writing a procedural crime novel that is not what I'm doing but I really liked him and I really liked the GP, Vicky, who he kind of, you know, bounces off. And when I say I really liked him, I don't, uh, you know, that sounds like, oh, have an I a wonderful writer. What I mean is I had fun writing him. I think you can like your own characters, Lynn. I think that's fine. Come on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> now, I, I've got a question for you, Lynn, and it's the question I end all the interviews with, and I'm sure you've heard it before. Hope you're prepared. Why do you write? Because I have to. <laughs> you were prepared, weren't you? <laughs> I, I go to bed at night calmer and feeling satisfied with myself when I have spent some time writing, even if it's only half an hour. And when I say writing, I don't mean my day job writing because that I can compartmentalise it reasonably well. And if I... If I'm not writing, and I feel this way about reading too, if I go to bed and I haven't written or I haven't read, 
preferably both, a reasonably substantial amount, I feel um, restless and unsettled. So for me, it, um, it's almost a form of meditation and it's definitely uh, a sense of accomplishment and, and personal progression. I like what I get in my head from reading and writing and um, yeah, I, I, I could not imagine ever living without both of those things. It's mm. just just part of who I am. Yeah, and I love that idea because we do talk about on this podcast how writing and reading is is consoling to us and we need that in our busy lives with all the little stresses and, like we said, the tedious things we have to do. I think, you know, literature in particular, because this is a literary podcast, um, but all arts, but literature gives you that, you know, that sense of rest and that sense of being present and it does put you in a meditative state. So that's why it's so important and that's why, you know, we advocate here that it really can change the world, even in small, small parts, because it can make you, you know, a calmer, better person, which, of course, then, you know, has a flow-on effect to the rest of the world. So I like that answer. And I think also reading and writing forces you to, there's all, there's all of that. I think it also forces you to go more deeply with your brain. Yeah. So not just the mindfulness of it and meditation aspect or meditative component, but, you know, because it's long form, you have to maintain your attention and you have to think and you have to explore yourself and the questions that, literature is raising and I think that's really important and we we're losing it with you know um, sound bites and quick grabs and teasers and listicles and all that kind of thing so I find that you know it's really nurturing and satisfying mm. no so do I so do I look speaking to the converted here but no I totally agree <laughs> Ellen, ah, oh, thank you so much for that conversation. I mean, you've just come in, you know, we've met for five seconds and yet you were quite happy to just, you know, divulge all these things to me. So I really appreciate that because that's how we have the best conversations here when we not only talk about the book, but we talk about, you know, where they came from and, and what you're trying to do with all those things that were in your head. So I really appreciate your honesty and your, your candid answers. Um, this was a lovely chat and I always think that in half an hour we just cover so much go so deep and you think, oh, my goodness, was that half an hour? <laughs> Here we are. That's great. Thanks, Danny. Uh, you, you do a great job and I know many people who admire what you do. So I'm really, really thrilled to be part of it. Well, thank you. That's really kind of you. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thanks, Danny.